this question. You guys ready for this? So introduce yourselves, and what is the single greatest lesson you have learned in your life? Oh, yeah, we're going deep waters. We're going through the annals of time here. So what is the single greatest lesson you have learned in your life? So go and impart that wisdom to the people at your table. I'll see you in a few minutes here. All right, take about another 60 seconds.
about 30 seconds. All right, let's bring it back together here. All right, let's do a show of hands here. How many of you, the wisdom that was coming out of your mouth was so good you wanted to take notes on yourself? Do we have any of those? Yeah, it's so powerful. I love it. <clears throat> well, that's why I gave you some uh, paper right there so you can write down what you said too. That's good. Hey, we're in a series on the book of Revelation, and uh, just a couple, way, by way of review, the, way, the approach that we're taking, and I'm not saying this is the only approach to the book of Revelation, or uh, this, is, this is the one that we're taking, <laughs> okay? I believe, I believe there's lots of valid approaches to it. This is the one we're taking. Uh, we're looking at, this is a book that is a revelation of, is this mic okay? Is it okay? Yeah. It's loud? Okay. All right, yeah, <clears throat> all the people who like it loud, Yes. It, this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. Interesting thing, the, the word Antichrist is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's not a book about bugs as big as Volkswagens or Scud missiles or computer chips in your forehead. It, the very first verse of the Bible, the very, very first verse of the book of Revelation says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. In that same verse, it also tells us a book of signs and symbols. It says he signified it, he signified it to us. So whenever we come to something like, the, I've been using this illustration, like a lamb, we don't picture a woolly farmyard animal. We recognize it's a picture of something else. And the third principle we've been looking at is that the key to interpreting the symbols in the book of Revelation are the other 65 books of the Bible. There's 66. So there's the other 65 books of the Bible. So we find the lamb in other places. We see in John 1, 29, John the Baptist says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is that lamb, that sacrificial lamb. And the last thing that we've been, uh, kind of the principle that we've been approaching this book with, a revelation of Jesus Christ to you will produce a revelation of Jesus Christ through you. So here's the thing. When we see him, we become like him. The more clearly we see Jesus, actually the word revelation means revealed, unveiled. It's actually the Greek word apocalypse. A lot of times we think apocalypse as the end of the world, but Jesus is trying to have us be the end of our world so we can step into his world. Amen. I just came up with that. That was better than anything I got written down here. Come on, somebody. No, I can't. I don't know what I said. <laughs> Apocalypse, a lot of people think of it as the end of, uh, the end of the world, but Jesus wants it to be the end of our world so we can step into his world. That's what the, the word revelation is literally the word apocalypsis. So there we go. So when we see him, but here's the thing. Whoever God is to you, he will be through you. It's really easy to spot a Christian who has an angry God theology is they're angry at everybody else, and they become the old covenant law, the fault-finding husband, trying to find fault in everybody, correcting you on all your Facebook posts. All right, out of the abundance of the heart, Facebook speaks. That's what the Bible says. So whoever God is to you, he will be through you. Can you imagine going to the church one day, and the pastor says, listen, I received a letter from heaven. It's from Jesus, and I want to read this letter from Jesus to you. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's actually happened. There are seven letters written to seven different churches. And so uh, Jesus, he gave these seven prophetic messages, and they were written to them, but they were also written for us. Now, here's the thing, guys. The Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. 
So it was actually written to seven actual churches living in Asia Minor in the first century. So we're going to have to understand what it meant to them. But um, I, I read it in a different translation this week, and for some reason it hit me differently, because the uh, letters of the churches in Revelation were all in red letters. The red letters are the words of Jesus. And I don't know why it just hit me differently. It was like, wow, these are the words of Jesus. A lot of people think Jesus' last words were the seven sayings on the cross, but they were actually the seven letters of the churches. All right, are you guys ready? The, uh, here's Jesus' prophetic message to the church at Thyatira, starting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. This is a little bit longer of a passage. We're going to spend most of our time on the first couple of images, but we're going to get through all of them. Uh, verse 18, write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Thyatira. For these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished brass. Verse 19, I know all that you've done for me, your love, your faith, your ministry, your steadfast perseverance. In fact, you now excel in these virtues even more than at first. So he's commending them. But I have this against you. You are forgiving, you are forgiving that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and seducing my loving servants. Not a lot of people are naming their kids Jezebel. <laughs> Have you noticed that? It's like, yeah, I think that's a good thing. I always thought, like, if your last name's Bell, you wouldn't, like, want to name your, like, daughter, like, Jesse, then be, like, Jesse Bell. It kind of sounds like it. So anyway, <clears throat> hope there's no Jesse Bells listening to this. All right. <laughs> who calls herself a prophetess and is seducing my loving servants. She is teaching that it is permissible to indulge in sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Verse 21, I have waited for her to repent from her vile immorality, but she willingly refuses to do so. Now I will lay her low with terrible distress along with all her adulterous partners if they do not repent. And I will strike down her followers with a deadly plague. Then all the congregations will realize that I am the one who thoroughly searches the most secret thought and innermost being. And I will give to each one what their works deserve. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't adhere to the teachings of Jezebel, and have not been initiated into the deep satanic secrets, I say to you, without laying upon you any other burden, cling tightly to all that you have until I appear. To everyone who is victorious and continues to do my works to the very end, I will give you authority over the nations to shepherd them with a royal scepter. And the rebellious will be shattered as clay pots. That's a um, quote from the Psalms. Verse 28, even as I also received authority from the presence of my Father, I will give you the morning star to the one who experiences victory. Uh, some translations say to the one who overcomes. Verse 29, so the one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is presently saying to all the churches. I think we conclude. We got all that, right? I'm just kidding. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of goodies in there. Right, let's look at verse 18 again. Start and write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Thyatira. Interesting, names in the Bible have meanings. They're not just like cool names. Like, oh, I think, you know, I think it'd be cool to call somebody this. They actually named somebody something that had a meaning with it. The word Thyatira literally means incense of suffering. It's interesting, in Ephesians, Christ was offered to God. Here's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. As an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So the message of this church at Thyatira, whose name means the incense of affliction, what they need to do is they need to get a revelation of the suffering of Jesus and how it produced a pleasing aroma, and it's not their suffering, their hard works, their distress that's going to be pleasing to God. This is the thing that this, this is the message this church is going to need. God was pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, so you don't need to continue to sacrifice to please him. Listen, guys, anytime you come to God and you think, I have to do something to open up his hand. <clears throat> I have to do something to get God to move. Guys, we've all done this. We come to God and he's like, you know what? I haven't prayed enough. 
think I've got some sin in my life? What if I've got unknown sin in my life? How am I even going to know about that, right? I mean, we get all these things that we have to do. Guys, that's the old covenant. He's, remember, he's writing to these churches in the middle of the first century. Jesus has died, and he has, uh, they are right in the middle of this transition from an old covenant to a new covenant. And so he's coming to these different churches and telling them, you need to repent. You need to change the way you think. You need a, you need a new paradigm for the way you're approaching things because this old covenant mindset, this mixture isn't working. It's all, I'm not planning on talking about this. It's almost like he gave them one generation to get this thing right. If you remember in, uh, in Matthew, he says, this generation will not, see, will not pass away until they see these things. And he names all these things. The temple will be destroyed. People will flee to the hills. Remember all those things? He said that in about AD 30. In AD 70, all of it came to pass under the emperor Nero, under the uh, general Titus. They came and they ransacked Jerusalem and they completely destroyed the temple. It's like he gave them one generation to get this thing right. And then he so destroyed the temple, they couldn't go back to the old covenant even if they wanted to. So here's these churches. They're right in the middle of this kind of this paradigm shift of a lifetime. That, 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 you know, and so he's telling them, you need to repent. And so he's revealing aspects of himself. So Christ was literally the, uh, the sacrifice. He was the incense, incense of offering that pleased the Father. There's nothing we can offer to the Father that's going to be pleasing apart from Jesus. Christ literally reveals himself to each one of these churches. And before he asks them to repent, before he asks them to change a thing, he says, here's an aspect of myself that I'm going to reveal to you that's going to give you the ability to change. A lot of us, we're trying to change so that we can see Jesus. That's backwards. That's like spiritual dyslexia. He says, see me, and when you see me, you will become like me. When you see that aspect of me, there's an impartation of grace that enables you to do it. Guys, the church in America, the church of Powell, the church of Zion, we need a revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about revival here in a second, but I think most revival is actually just old covenant striving works, what people are trying to do to get God to move. Come on, somebody. Man. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, for these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished brass. So let's first look at the eyes of blazing fire. Eyes of blazing fire. Interesting, there's this same description of Jesus in uh, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8, and then 12 through 14. So let's set the context there. I believe it's coming up there. Yep, nope, yep, there it is. So remember, we're looking for that eyes of blazing fire. Let's look at the context of it here. Then I heard what seemed to be a thunderous voice of a great multitude, like the sound of a massive waterfall and mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. This is, a, this is a picture of Jesus on the white horse. Looks like the second coming. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt him and give him glory because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, shining bright and clear, has been given her to her to wear, and the fine linen represents the righteous deeds of his holy believers. So here's Jesus. He's getting ready to come on the white horse, the, the, the hosts of heaven are shouting. The believers are dressed in white. Verse 12, he, this is speaking of Jesus now. He wore many regal crowns, and his eyes were flashing like flames of fire. He had a secret name inscribed on him that is only known to himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title is called the Word of God. Following him on white horses were the armies of heaven, wearing white fine linen, pure and, right, pure and bright. 
Interesting here. The image here portrayed Jesus as the one whose eyes are like flames of fire, and he's the same one who has his garment dipped in blood. He's the one who's redeemed you, washed you by his blood, literally clothed you in his righteousness. Okay? So here's the repentance that Jesus is asking of his church. He's asking them, get a revelation of what my eyes see so that you see the same thing. His eyes are like flames of fire, and he's seeing you in a judgment that took place in your past, not in your future. What happens when he's revealed from heaven with eyes of flaming fire? He sees you as clothed in fine white linen, which is his righteousness. What's the repentance he's at? Remember, he's revealing an aspect of his church that's going to help them change. What do they need to see? They need to see what he sees. That the judgment is not in their future. The judgment already took place in their past. I'm telling you what. Jesus is saying, you need to see yourself the way I see yourself, the way my flaming eyes see yourself. He's declared that you are righteous, that your robes are clean, and it's not a product of your works, your labor, your amazing prayer life, how many Bible verses you memorize, how many people you pray for for healing. All those things are great if they come from a position of rest. Lovers do more than slaves. So our works come out of love, faith that works by love. All right. Here's some good news. This is not something Jesus is going to do. It's something he already did when he gave himself up for us. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice, all of those things took place in the past. You've already been sanctified. You've been cleansed by the washing with his word. Remember, there was that sword that proceeded out of his mouth, that proceeded from rest. That he might present you to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Well, would it change your life if you began to see yourself as Jesus sees you? But there's this worm theology in the church. I'm just a worm. I'm just lowly. I'm this and that. It's like, oh, would you like me to come into agreement with you on that? Your feet, his feet are like burnished brass. You got your seatbelts on? <laughs> I unleashed this on the staff a little bit. It just, you just can't help it. This stuff is so good. Jesus' good news is so good. All right, feet like, feet like burnished brass. That is harder to say than you think. <laughs> feet like burnished brass. Much of what you see in the book of Revelation looks like a picture of the tabernacle. You see, you see different pieces in there. It's like you come to these seven golden candlesticks in chapter 1. Well, those are pieces of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. You see um, altars of incense and mercy seat and throne room and cherubim and a lamb who had been slain and hidden manna. That's all from the tabernacle of Moses. It's interesting. If you were to lay Jesus over the tabernacle of Moses, okay, let's just picture the tabernacle of Moses first of all. So the tabernacle of Moses was in the, in the center of the camp of Israel when they were at rest. And so it, it was, they had the... Um, you had the outer, outer court, the inner court, the Holy of Holy. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. All the goods, the presence of God resided there. Okay, and so Israel, when they were at camp, they formed a cross. And so you had three, three tribes to the north in their tents facing the tabernacle. Three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. So when they were at rest, they were in the shape of a cross. And they're all facing the tabernacle, which all the uh, furniture was in the shape of a cross. 
from the outer court to the inner court. There were all the bleeding spots of Jesus were right there. And as if you could lay Jesus over it, his head would be in the throne room. His head would be in the mercy seat. And his feet would be down in the, uh, in the brazen altar and the brass laver. Now, so the different pieces of the furniture inside the tabernacle were arranged in a cross, and they were all pictures of something that he did on the cross. Isn't this interesting? And it's interesting, Israel, they faced it, and God said, when you face this, I will be your rear guard. I mean, it would make sense if you were an army that you would be watching the hills. But God says, I've got your back when you're feasting on the cross. And interesting. And so there was different types of metal inside of the tabernacle. And so gold uh, represented uh, divine nature or deity. There was silver that represented redemption. But brass symbolized judgment, okay? So you had the brass altar. So the brass altar was the first, when you're coming into the outer court, this is where you were blood-bought. There was an animal that was sacrificed. There was horns of the altar. They did different things. This is where the animal was sacrificed, and when the animal was sacrificed, it was burnt, and it said that this animal became, this sacrificial animal, it became a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? I would say that it is not only God who needs to smell this pleasing aroma. Why, did it, why was it pleasing to him? Because it reminded him of his son. Remember, all these things were to atone for sin. They were to cover for sin. They were pointing towards a day when one day this will be fully realized. But until then, God took reminders of his son. Guys, it's not only God who needs to smell the pleasing aroma. It's the church of Thyatira and the church of Columbus, Ohio. We need a revelation of the smell of this sin offering that his, sin, his suffering was enough for me. And Isaiah 53, it said, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Because it produced such a sweet savor in his nostrils so he could relate to his people the way he's always wanted to without sin in the way. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God was completely satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. Let me ask you this. It was enough for the Father. Is it enough for you? Or do you feel like you still need to do some things? You're still not good enough. You're still unworthy. You're still... Listen, if you're not born again, then all those things are true. And I've got some good news for you. You can trust in Jesus and come onto the inside. You can become an Ark of the Covenant on two legs, carrying around the glory of God. I believe that when Jesus says his feet are like burnished brass, <clears throat> we're, seeing that we're seeing Jesus laying over the tabernacle. This is, this, this is part of it. He says, I want you to look at my feet. I've already walked through the furnace of affliction for you. I was wounded for your transgressions. I was bruised for your iniquity. The chastisement that, brought me, that was upon me brought you peace, and by my stripes you are healed. He's saying, listen, you need to smell this incense. You need to know that, look at my feet. I've walked through the suffering for you, so you don't have to suffer and afflict yourselves and, and do all these things to get God to, to pay attention to you. The second piece of brass furniture, um, so you had the brazen altar was made out of brass. And so after they would have the sacrifice, they would come to this brass laver. And so, so they didn't have mirrors back then. They didn't have like glass technology. And so they had these highly polished brass mirrors and so the, the instructions for the building of the tabernacle were, were very interesting. And so they said, they said that the King James calls them the looking glasses of the women. They were the highly, highly polished brass mirrors they would take, and they would beat this bronze into this, like a basin. So just picture, picture like this pulpit is a giant basin. And I've just offered this sacrifice, so now I've got this, the blood of the sacrifice on my hands from the brazen altar. Now, I'm, remember, I'm, going into the, uh, I'm getting ready to go into the holy place of the tabernacle, the second dimension, and I'm washing my hands in this water. Where do you get water in the desert from? You guys ever wonder about this? 
the water that filled up the, the brass laver was the water from the struck rock. Okay? You guys remember, there was a rock in the desert, and when they struck it, water came out. And 1 Corinthians 10, 10 tells us that that water was actually, the rock was Jesus Christ. We're going to lay up this thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is the new covenant explaining this picture of the old covenant. We're about to layer some things together, and it's about to get good. Are you guys ready? Here's the spiritual... In- a lot of people have a problem with the spiritual interpretation of the Bible like we're doing here. What makes me nervous is every time the New Testament authors interpreted the Old Testament, it was a spiritual interpretation. And people are like, oh, it's a spiritual... Yeah, that's how the Holy Spirit led the New Covenant authors to interpret these things. So let's look at the Holy Spirit doing this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under a cloud and all passed through the sea. This is speaking of the children of Israel. They had the cloud by day. They passed through the Red Sea and all were baptized in Mo- into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's using this context saying how the, um, the, old, the children of Israel had the gospel preached to them. How they had the gospel preached to them. He said they had like a water baptism with this cloud and passing through the sea. He's saying that was their water baptism, spiritual interpretation. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. So remember Moses in the desert. He strikes the rock. And uh, what was Christ? Christ was the one who was smitten. And out of that flowed life. Remember, there flowed blood and water out of his side. There, There flowed that. But look what it said. The spiritual rock that followed them. So somehow this rock followed them. And this was, so here's this uh, brazen, uh, this brass laver. It's, 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 these, uh, it's this mirror that's filled with the water that is Christ. And now I've just come from the, um, the brass altar. I've got the blood of the sacrifice on my hands, and you're to wash your hands in these things. Are you guys ready for this? What's the symbolism in this? Every time you look at yourself, you're always to see yourself through the blood. What were they to do at the brass laver? They were to look at themselves. They were to examine themselves in the mirror but never apart from the blood of Christ. Is that good news to anybody? If you looked into this mirror and you looked into this water, which was Christ, what you would see is you would have to see yourself through the blood. God never wants you to look at yourself apart from the blood of Christ because he never looks at you apart from the blood of Christ. What does he want? He wants you to see what he sees. Well, what does the church need today? We need to see ourselves through the blood. We need to smell the incense of that burnt offering that is a pleasing aroma to God. And when I see myself as Jesus sees me, it transforms my life. What's the Bible say? As a man thinks in his heart, if you think you're a miserable worm, that God has just about had enough with you, and that his, you know, his frustration level is rising, and as soon as it gets to a certain level, the bowls of judgment are going to get poured out, which we're going to see well, it's already happened. You always act out of what you believe. This is a powerful statement. Here's a good, a good definition of faith. Faith is to act as if it were so. So you will always act out of what you believe. So if I give you a prophetic word and said, yea, that I say unto thee, you don't have to use King James, but it just feels powerful to do that. Uh, yea, that I say unto thee, this building will blow up in 10 minutes. If you believe that word, you would act on it and you would boogie out of here as fast as you could, right? You would act on what you believe to be true. You always act out of what you believe. If you believe that you are just a sinner saved by grace, you will continue to sin by faith. 
What are you talking about? These eyes of fire, you need to see yourself how Jesus sees you. And if you're just a sinner saved by grace, oh, I got this old nature and this new nature. And I, if I continue to feed the old nature, it's like this dog, and it gets fed and it gets stronger. But if I'll feed the good nature, you guys, that old man died. Read Romans 6. Dead, died, dead. What's it? 13 times in Romans 6. It says you died, dead. You were died. Now, now consider yourself dead to sin. Reckon yourself. You need to begin to see yourself. Repent. Put a new paradigm. Get a new lens. Because you will always act out of how you see yourself. And if you're just a sinner saved by grace, you will continue to sin by faith. But if you believe you are a righteousness of God in Christ, you will live more holy on accident than you ever could through all of your own self-effort. The just will live by... Right believing produces right living. I'm telling you, this is good news. I don't know why my voice went up so high. <laughs> I'm a real boy. That's what it sounded like Pinocchio there for a second there. <laughs> if I believe I'm righteous, I'm going to act like I'm righteous, and it won't be an act. It'll be an action. If I believe I'm a new creation, I'm going to act like I'm a new creation. If I believe I've been made spotless and holy, then what will I act like? Sin is no longer a problem for the believer. It's a result of the problem. You forgot who you were. In the same way that Adam and Eve had a pure new nature, they had to be deceived in order to, be, to sin. It's the same with Christians today. You've received a new nature. Your, sin, your nature is no longer to sin. You may have some bad habits that you need to renew your mind and get rid of. But God sees you as spotless and holy, bad habits and all. Bad habits this morning and all. He sees you righteous and holy, not based on your behavior, but based on Jesus' behavior. That's the sweet-smelling aroma we need to smell. That's the eyes of fire that we need to see how he sees us. Oh, they've already been judged on the cross with me. Oh, man. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to picture for a moment that Jesus is looking at you. And that he is pleased. I want you to imagine that the Father is looking at you. And he is pleased. I want you to imagine the Holy Spirit is wrapped around you like a scarf around your neck. And he is pleased. He does not define you by your past. He does not define you by your worst moments. He does not define you by your best moments. He's not impressed with your good deeds. He's not depressed by your bad deeds. He sees you united to Christ. All right, open up your eyes. How's that feel? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take a minute at your table and just, um, how did that feel? What parts were hard? What parts were inspiring? Okay, so how did that feel? What parts were easy for you? Like, yes. What parts, like, you know what? The Holy Spirit is a scarf wrapped around my, it doesn't have to be a scarf, but just whatever. Go for it. How did it feel? What parts were hard? What parts were inspiring?
All right, let's take about another 60 seconds. Twenty seconds. All right, let's bring it in here. All right, let's look at verse 19. I know all that you've done for me, your love and faith, your ministry and steadfast perseverance. In fact, you now excel in these virtues even more than at first. Works are not a bad thing unless they're you trying to please God. There is something called good works. What makes a work good is if you do it from a place of rest, if you do it in his strength, if you do it because he is pleased with you, not so that he will be pleased from you. Listen, we're working from victory. We're working from rest. We're not working to get a victory. That's why it's interesting. Spiritual warfare, how does he say? He says, stand. And we've done everything to stand. Stand firm. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because the, it's a strange battle because the battle's already been won. So we're to stand in the victory that's already been won. The devil's already been defeated. There's not a contest up there between God and Satan to see who's going to win. And if we don't pray enough, then Satan's going to tip the scales. God could snort out of one nostril and clear this whole thing out. (laughs) But he has chosen to redeem this universe through lovers made in his image that co-labor with him. So uh, Jesus notes, you're growing in your faith and love. He sees the spiritual growth. I love this. Jesus sees the spiritual growth in your life. Other people may not notice it. Others may be slow to commend you for it, even if they do see it. But Jesus sees it. He sees the baby steps. He notes, he notes that and commends us for that. Listen, don't be afraid to commend people and recognize people when they're doing well. There's this religious demon that sits on the shoulders of many Christians that says, if you tell them this, their head will get big and you'll cause them to stumble. Listen, you do not have the ministry of cranial downsizing. Well, what if this goes to their head? It needs to go to their head and into their heart. Oh, what, what if I give them a big head? What if you accidentally encourage them so they believe the promises of God over their life and actually go and fulfill their destiny and change the planet? It's not your job to be the humble police. What's the Bible says? Encourage one another not humble one another. The Bible says humble yourselves, not each other. Oh, I don't know about that person. I, don't, I can't even tell you how many people, oh, I hate to tell you this. I don't want to give you a big head. Oh, you think pastors don't struggle with people ripping on them nonstop? 
Like, are you kidding me? You want to see the encouragement to discouragement ratio? I bet you it's the same as your life. I don't know about you. I can live on one good compliment for about 10 days. It's like, wow, I am making a difference. Thank you, Jesus. Encourage one another. When it comes to raising your... Thank you. Yes, thank you. I receive it. Bring it on. <laughs> Listen, when it comes to raising your kids, you can do it one of two ways. You can look at your kid and say, you worthless little brat. You're never going to amount to anything. And by the time you're 18, you're probably going to end up in jail. And if he comes into or she comes into agreement with that, they'll fulfill your prophecy over their lives. Or when they mess up, you can say something like this. Listen, you're too good to act like that. That is not who you are. I remember I read this story. It was interesting. It was in a non-Christian business book. Uh, boy, I don't even, it was just a thin book. I can see the book. I can't remember the title. But they had this story of how, these, how this Indian chief dealt with his son. So the son had gone to a village and stole something from a neighboring tribe. And so they brought him before the tribal elders. I think there was 12 of them. They sat around uh, the campfire. And, uh, and so the, the, the father, the tribe, the, the chief, had his son sitting next to him. And the first man went, and they began to recount all the good things that this son had did. You know what? I remember when you were seven years old and you killed your first deer. You showed such courage in that. I remember when. And they began, none of them mentioned the fact that he had stolen from the tribe and brought shame to them. What they did is they began to recount the good things. What are they doing? They were reminding him of who he was. And the kid is in tears and is repenting before the father without them calling out anything bad. You know what the Holy Spirit sent into your life to do? To convict you of your righteousness. He's not to rub your nose in your sin and say, I know what you did last summer. If all these Christians knew who you were, you'd be a fake. That's the voice of condemnation. That's not good preaching that makes you put on your fig leaves and hide from God. He says he's going to convict the, uh, you know, I thought the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. I don't doubt that he highlights an area of your life that's missing, that he wants to come in. But the verse actually says he's to convict the world of sin because they don't believe. He's to convict you of your righteousness and of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. He's trying to convince you that the devil's defeated and you're righteous. Any other voice? Ain't his voice. How are we doing? Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't come and point out an area of your life that's missing his experience. But it's going to draw you to him, not push you away from him. How are we doing? Listen, your children need to hear that they are who they really are and not just define them by their weakest moment. They need a fresh revelation of their identity and continue to believe that. And what's going to happen? They're going to act like the righteous sons and daughters that they really are. You know who else needs to hear it? Your boss your coworkers, your spouse, that obnoxious neighbor, your friend who has obnoxious personality disorder, OPD. It's not an actual diagnosis, but don't you think it kind of should be? I'm like, yeah, that would make sense that that person has it. We live in an affirmation-deprived society. Do you guys realize that? As believers, our words can change the trajectory of somebody's life. So here's what I want you to do. Look at your, uh, your, your sheets there. Who is one person this week that you feel prompted to encourage? Holy Spirit, bring somebody to my mind. And if you can't think of anybody, encourage Sean. So, okay? <laughs> I just made that up. Who is one person this week you feel prompted to encourage? I just gave you some, a way to do it. I, I want you to write down their name. And uh, what are some encouraging things you would tell them? You could do it like this. Hey, I just wanted to tell you some things I really appreciate about, appreciate about you. Boom. 
Uh, when I look at you, here's what I see. So why don't you just take 30 seconds and write down a name and just ask. Some of you may need the Holy Spirit to show you some good things about this person. <clears throat> you know what that's called? That's called the prophetic. The prophetic finds the gold in the midst of the dirt. All right. Take 30 seconds. And then we'll talk about Jezebel. How many are struggling to find something nice? <laughs> like, I love how consistent you are. You're always bad. No, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. <clears throat> Ask the Lord, what, how, how does he see them? Ten seconds. All right, let's look at verse 20. So he's given them the love sandwich. He told them the things that he commends about them, and now he's going to give them some correction. But the correction is going to be out of, that, uh, out of how he revealed himself. Verse 20, but I have this against you. You are forgiving that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is seducing my loving servants. She's teaching that it is permissible to indulge in sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, it's doubtful here that there's a woman actually named Jezebel uh, in the church. is probably more of a spirit behind that that people are partnering with. <clears throat> Jezebel was a woman in the Old Testament. If you look in the book of Kings, she was a wicked queen, and she was married to kind of a weak king named Ahab. And so one of the things Jezebel was judged for was she set up a man named Naboth who was going to receive an inheritance. He was going to receive a vineyard as an inheritance from his father. And she orchestrated this whole thing so that he would get killed, and so that Naboth would get killed, and the inheritance would go to her rather than to its rightful owner. One of the things that a Jezebel spirit does is it tries to get us to give up our inheritance, especially when it's connected to a vineyard. When I think of a vineyard, I can't help but think about, a, about the bread and wine of the new covenant. Anything that you would make you give up your inheritance in Christ is a Jezebel spirit that seduces you away from your true identity. <laughs> Anything that would make you give up your inheritance in Christ is a Jezebel spirit that seduces you away from your true identity. What does the Bible say? It says, sin is pleasurable for a season. What does it say? Sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols, these momentary pleasures. Compromise kills your confidence before God. Remember, sin changes your, doesn't change your relationship with God. It changes your relationship with the devil. Hebrews said it comes in and it deceives you, makes you begin to believe lies about God, that he's angry about you. And so this Jezebel spirit is going to try to get you to compromise. It's okay. You know, God's job, it's in his job description to forgive you. He has to forgive you. And it's just, man, you're just opening yourself up for things. When I think about fornication and adultery, it says sexual morality, I think about the mixing of two covenants. 
you can, uh, you, you, can, you can have the pure covenant, recognize we've been made completely right with God because of what Jesus has done, and we put complete trust and confidence in him. And now all of our works that flow out of that are good works. Or we can uh, have option number two, we can try to please God with our actions, with how good we are. <clears throat> one of the things you see, and this is just one of the craziest stories in the Bible, is um, <clears throat> Jezebel has got her prophets that are uh, serving this God named Baal, Okay. And so all these prophets of Baal are going against Elijah. There's this big showdown. Remember this? <clears throat> and so the thing is, who is God's going to answer by fire? And so they build this altar with the wood. And so the prophets of Baal are crying out to their God, trying to get him to move. You remember this? What are they doing? It says they begin beating themselves and cutting themselves. And they're crying out and they're worn out. I love Elijah's boldness. He's like mocking them. He's like, hey, maybe your God's taking a nap right now. Maybe you need to cry out a little louder. Oh, man, that is bold stuff. Hey, maybe your God's relieving himself. He's taking a little bathroom break. Have you read it? This is in the Old Testament. He's just mocking. So they're cutting themselves. I mean, they are completely worn out. All day and all through the afternoon, they have worn themselves out. And they cannot get their God to move with their good works. Are you ready for this? Here's what it says. Um, At the time of the evening sacrifice... At the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet stands up and says, if God be God, let him answer by fire. And remember before this, he's like, hey, pour water on this thing. He's going to make it as hard to consume as possible. Dig a trench. And they're, they're soaking this sacrifice. And um, what happened? Fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Why? Because it was during the time of the evening sacrifice. When Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, at the exact mo- it was the exact time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah called down fire from heaven. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? Are you ready for this? Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross in Matthew 27, verses 46 and 47? It says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried, aloud with a loud, cried out with a loud voice, saying, he's speaking in his native tongue, Aramaic, Eli, Eli, labai sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Don't you think it's an odd coincidence that the thing he's calling out for Elijah Because Elijah, hundreds of years before that, at the very same moment of the evening sacrifice, said, if God is God, let him come down and consume the sacrifice. Jesus was the evening sacrifice. All the works of the prophets of Baal couldn't get their God to move. But the evening sacrifice caused fire to come down from heaven. How are we doing? Listen, you don't have to cut yourself and beat yourself and fast yourself and pray yourself to death and scream and cry and bawl and squall to get God's attention. You don't have to go through all these religious calisthenics to get God to move. This is what Jesus is telling the church of Thyatira to repent of. Repent of this seduction and deception of mixing these two covenants. He's telling Thyatira, you need to get a revelation of my suffering. Remember, Thyatira means the incense of suffering. They need to smell the pleasing aroma of Jesus. Verse 21, I've waited, for, I've waited for her to repent from her vile immorality, but she willingly refuses to do so. God is so patient and kind, he even waits for Jezebel to repent. So you can be thankful that he's patient with us. Verse 22, now I will lay her low with terrible distress along with all her adulterous partners if they do not repent. I want to just make a quick note here. Um, I like, there's a more literal translation of this is the English Standard Version. And it, instead of saying um, her adulterous partners and then... Uh, I think later on it says, let's see, verse, oh, let's just read verse 23. And I will strike down her followers with a deadly plague. A little translation says, I will strike her children dead. Okay, what are children? They're the fruit of an intimate union. 
Then all the congregations will realize that I'm the one who thoroughly searches the most secret thoughts and innermost being. I will give to each one what their works deserve. Okay? I will strike down her children. <clears throat> Remember the other week we looked at Romans chapter 7, and where you used to be spiritually married to the law under the person Adam. Adam was your husband. You were married to the law. But you died to that, remember, you died to that first husband so that you could be married to the second husband. And if that first man, Adam, didn't die, the, the old man didn't die, then you being married to Christ would be an adulterous relationship. You guys remember this, Romans chapter 7? If it's your first week here, just God bless you. Just <laughs> Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> I think Jesus is saying, everything that you have produced out of union with Adam and the old covenant has to be put to death. What are the children that are going to be put to death? The fruit of the union, of you coming together with that old man, that old covenant, trying to produce those works, he says those have all got to die. What's he calling them in Isaiah? He says those are filthy rags. It doesn't please me, your, your efforts. What's the pleasing aroma? Is the sufferings of Jesus. I hope somebody's getting something here. <clears throat> what flows out of our union with Adam and the old covenant has been the cause of all of our problems and tribulation and suffering. And he says, that's the bed that I'm going to cast you on. You're going to have the consequences of that, the tribulation of your own suffering. Listen, guys, when you've had enough suffering, when you've been listening to the prophets of Baal long enough, telling you all the things you have to do to get God to move, you're going to figure out at some point, you've been listening to the wrong prophets. We need to call... A fast. We need to call a solemn assembly. We need to call an all-night prayer meeting. We need to call 24-7 prayer meetings. We need to call, I'm, I'm, listen, fasting, solemn assemblies, those things are all good. If you're not trying to get God to move, if you're trying to come into a greater revelation that he already moved, amen. If not, your 24-7 prayer meetings are 24-7 unbelief sessions in the old covenant. How we doing? I'm not trying to be mean. Hello. Lord's just trying to baptize this whole thing. I'm just trying to just, Lord, wash us with your word. That's pretty good. Except there's an electrical outlet right here. <laughs> Guys, some of these concepts about revival today, the word revival isn't in the New Testament. Okay? The closest we have is in the book of Acts. It says, repent that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What's going to cause the times of refreshing to come from the presence of the Lord? Changing our mind. Seeing Jesus more clearly. <clears throat> We've tried to get revival by getting people to stand around altars and keep confessing their sins that have already been dealt with. Amen. <laughs> How many times can you confess sin for the same thing? He says, I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. Listen, guys, I believe we need to confess sins. If you've sinned, you need to confess it, which means you need to come into agreement with what God says. You need to recognize it was wrong, and you're right, and I receive your grace. There is that confession of sins, but I'm confessing because I'm forgiven, not to get forgiven. Amen. Guys, if you sin and you get hit by a bus and die, you don't go to hell because you didn't have an, unconf you had an unconfessed sin. He paid for your sins once for all. Eternal redemption. You're in. You're covered. Jim, are you talking about eternal security? Well, I'm not talking about eternal insecurity. That's what I grew up in. I don't know why God isn't moving. I don't know why he isn't healing. I don't know why he isn't prospering. Maybe I didn't repent hard enough. 
Maybe if I cry out to him day and night and night and day until I've lost my voices and I marched around and I tried to get God to move based on something and I cut myself and beat myself and prophets of Baal. A repentance needs a shift from a sin consciousness to a son consciousness. We need to repent and change our minds to what Jesus has already done so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I don't know about you. I was reading that phrase this morning and it just, it just hit me. I mean, what a precious phrase, times refreshing from the presence of the Lord. What produced the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 was a fresh revelation of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, not anything that man did. I'm amazed at these books that go back and look at the history. How can we replicate the move of God? They had a revelation of Pentecost. They repented, they changed their mind, they believed it, and it came. Oh, what we need to do is we need to all come together in unity. It's the unity of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that brings us unity. We don't have to get unity in order to get the Spirit. Good luck getting in unity in your own strength. My goodness. What we believe matters, gang. Let's refuse to cut ourselves and believe like the prophets of Baal that we have to suffer and do something to get God to move. There's a religious system that has robbed the people of God of their father's inheritance. But let's be the church that refuses to give up our vineyard, that which produces the wine of the Spirit. All right. Verse 24. Are we okay? We're going to go quickly through these last parts. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't adhere to the teachings of Jezebel... And have not been initiated into deep satanic secrets, I say to you, without laying upon you any other burden, cling tightly to all that you have until I appear. Possess what you've already been given, is what he's saying. Don't let people take from you what God has given you. Boy, this is powerful. Guys, you need to remember you are the holy of holies on two legs. You are a walking revival. You are soon to be unveiled as one with Jesus. Everything you love about Jesus, he's making you into that same person. He's saying, hold tightly to this. Don't let anybody take it from you. Verse 26. To everyone who is victorious and continues to do my works to the very end, I will give you authority over the nations to shepherd them with a royal scepter. God actually wants to give his bride influence over nations. The shepherd's club um, is what the, the shepherd used. It was this wooden club that had a metal tip on the end of it. So it was used to drive away wild animals, to kill the wolves. And the rebellious will be shattered as clay pots, even as I also received authority from the presence of my father. Christ shares with every conqueror his own rank before the father, and we will participate in his eternal reign. The authority that I received, you get to receive and we get to rule nations. I don't know if you know, heaven's not going to be like one giant church service. Yeah, I know. Like, I've been to some good church services, but like, I don't want to live my life in church. Remember, we're the opposite of the NFL. The NFL practices all week to play on Sunday. We practice on Sunday to play all weeks. I'll play all week. This is, this is not life. This is training. Okay? And so heaven, this is preparation for heaven. We are training for reigning. We're going to be, oh, that's, that's the very last parts of it, um, of uh, Revelation. And we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. So I'll be like, hey, Chris, why don't you take Pluto? Well, let's see what you can do with Pluto, Chris. And so there's this endless galaxy that's continually expanding that we're going to somehow bring, just like Adam and Eve were to take what was going on in the garden and spread it to the earth, we're going to spread it through this galaxy. And every thought will be a prayer. 
And his presence will be with us the whole time. And you'll be completely, you'll be doing what you were made to do for me. It's going to be awesome. Maybe we'll um, move at the speed of thought. I don't know. Maybe we'll walk through walls. That's what Jesus, remember, Jesus, his, uh, his resurrected body, he could walk through walls. He um, didn't have to eat, but he could. That'd be nice. <laughs> I only eat what I want. Krispy Kreme donuts will be filled with protein. It's going to be incredible in heaven. <laughs> Verse 28, I will give the morning star to the one who experiences victory, or to the one who overcomes. So the one whose heart is open, let him listen carefully to what the Spirit is presently saying to all the churches. Here's the promise to the one who overcomes. I will give them the morning star. Another translation could be the star of the dawn. Here's what's beautiful. Jesus is the morning star in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, in 2 Peter 1, 19, and Revelation 22, 16. Jim, will you repeat that again? Jesus is the morning star in Daniel 12, chapter 3, 2 Peter 1, 19, and Revelation 22, 16. Here's what you get, guys. You get a revelation of him. It's reserved for lovers who will crush Jezebel, that spirit of compromise, that spirit of mixing the covenants. So I'm encouraging you, church, take these letters in Revelation personally. Let correction come to your heart. Let the repentance happen here. Let the affirmation and love fill your soul. And let me just say this last thing. Love the church the way Jesus loves the church. I'll tell you what, I'm a grace guy. I feel like I'm pretty loving. You talk bad about my bride... There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a different thing that comes out of me. And I got to imagine Christ, he is jealous for his bride. He shed blood for his bride. So just be careful. The bride's imperfect, you know, and um, it won't be this way forever. He's making us into a, blo- a bride without spot or wrinkle. He's giving us all a facelift. It's going to be incredible. No spots, no wrinkles. Spirits of bow tie. Anyway. You've never been in a perfect church, and you know the old joke. If you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. The church is people. It's not an organization, and so this one isn't perfect either, but just be careful how you talk about the church. It's his bride. All right, so let's, uh, let's end with this picture here. So um, never look at yourself apart from Christ because God never does. I want you to uh, picture yourself going into this next week. You've got blood on your hands and feet. It's the redemption blood. You've been blood-bought. You are now a pleasing aroma because you've been united to Christ. And now you're looking at yourself in that mirror with the water that is, the rock, that is from the struck rock, which is Christ. And you never see yourself apart from the blood of Christ now. I want you to picture yourself going into your week now. I want you to just, uh, just, what are the situations that you're going into? What are you facing this week? I want you to see yourself as I'm never apart from the blood of Christ. I'm going in innocent. Let me ask you this. How much do you think God was willing to support Jesus when he was on earth? He was like, eh, I don't know. Let's see if he's good. No, no, no. He was, I love, uh, what's the picture? It says, um, God is uh, looking to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. I want you to picture yourself walking into this week with a God who's looking to strongly support you. And whenever you start to doubt it, I want you to look into that mirror and see yourself mixed with the blood of Christ. Okay? So do that. I want you to think through this week. So Holy Spirit, help us to picture those situations, but to picture them from heaven's reality, to change our thinking so we change our experience, that we are never apart from you, that you are looking to strongly support us. 
Let's just take the last two minutes to end with this. Let's just pray for each other. Just partner up in two, maybe uh, three at the most, and just, hey, what are you facing this week where you need God to strongly support? Let's just pray into that. But we're praying from a position of victory. I love the uh, Second Chronicles Chronicle 714. Everyone quotes it for revival. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. I will hear from heaven. Listen, guys, God's waiting for somebody to speak from heaven and not just from the earth. There's so many prayers from the earth trying to get up there rather than recognize we're seated with Christ. We're praying from a completely different position. So when you're praying today, I want you to pray from heaven. You're bilocational. You're on heaven and earth. All right, so take these two minutes. What are you, what are you facing this week? Have that one or two people, because if you do it at the whole table, it'll take too long. So go for it.